Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Adrian Van Vactor. Not that... uh, course, we don't always enjoy having you, but Peter Martin is going to be indisposed today, so we will continue rhetoric next week. But continuing on with your expertise, it's a pleasure to have you. Hey, I'm happy to be here. And I would rather hear Peter, Peter as well, but uh, I'll, I'll be happy to sit in and listen. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that the topic, however, hasn't changed. If you have questions about the Bible, feel free to send them in. If you want to email us, it is questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you would like to join us online, it is, of course, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and that, of course, will be our Facebook page. YouTube is a reason for hope, and our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, is where we recommend you all most preferably to join us. If you engage with us there, just click on the Watch Live tab, and on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll have a comment section where you can leave your questions for us, which we'll be monitoring for the duration of the stream. And as well, if you want to know when we will be next broadcasting in your respective time zone, we'll have a countdown clock available for you there as well. Note that as we are going through the Bible, one question to the heart at a time, as long as you fit our three criteria for answering Bible questions, we will be happy to address them. Note the sincerity of the question will require you to want to hear the answer. The question should be in substance about the Bible, meaning, of course, that the answer is in the Bible, not just that it mentions the Bible in some vague way. If you want to talk about, you know, historical fan fiction or something, we'll uh, advise you find another broadcast. But if, on the other hand, you want to deal with what is actually written in God's inspired Word, we're happy to deal with that for the next hour. If you'd also like to send your questions to us through Twitter, they've uh, I guess briefly rekindled our hope, we'll see. But it's Scott R4H at Twitter. Of course, you can send your questions to us there as well. And we're looking more into expanding that ministry so long as it is a stable one. And speaking of stability, note that if uh, Facebook or YouTube ever take us down for things that we say, you can still join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. And of course, before we get into your questions, we want to take a moment to start off in a word of prayer, which is much needed. Uh, any technical issues which we are presently having is, uh, I guess, inevitable with new equipment, but pray that long term it's something God can use. Adrian, want to start us off with a word of prayer, and we'll see sure. where the Lord takes us. Yes, Father God, <clears throat> pray that uh, today's uh, time that we spend uh, just answering people's questions and getting into the Word would be uh, fruitful and give grace to those who hear. Uh, give us the the ability to give the right answers and to articulate uh, your heart. Uh, we're just uh, messengers and mouthpieces, and uh, ultimately it's about shining the light on truth and pointing to you. So we love you, and thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, starting us off, a question from uh, someone very near and dear to your heart, Adrian. Allie wants to know if the hero's journey, as far as the story narrative is concerned, uh, is present in the Bible and where that came from. 
from. Uh, of course, for those of you who aren't familiar, The Hero's Journey is probably one of the more fundamental storytelling outlines as far as a, an effective narrative is concerned, and we see very much lacking in films today. Uh, of course, it starts off, it's a 17-step process. I'll just uh, summarize it down into four for the sake of brevity. But you start with a call to adventure. Someone in an ordinary environment is given the opportunity to step out of their world and with the meeting of a mentor, they then refuse the call. The second stage is the crossing of the threshold where they encounter a series of trials, an opportunity to meet with God, an opportunity to abandon their journey once it's already begun, and then the third stage, the apotheosis and atonement, if you will, the overcoming of said temptations and dark nights of the soul, where you cross the final threshold, which is, of course, mastering the two worlds, the one that you left behind and the one that you're now embracing, where you then get the freedom to live in your return. Now, what's interesting about this story structure, where you have the calling out, the uh, confrontation within, the overcoming of, and the conquering over, in this four-stage process of development of a character, it's obviously only going to mean something to somebody if they can relate to it personally. And there's no better way to do this than with history. And when we look at the Bible, we're not just talking about a book, we're talking about a series of 66 books with three different categories in mind, history, poetry, and prophecy. Now, prophecy, obviously, speaking from God's perspective, isn't going to form too much of a narrative unless you look at the human race as a whole. But when we look at history and the poetry of the Old and New Testaments, you do see examples of this. For instance, during the time of the Judges, you see, interestingly enough, uh, individuals like Gideon and Samson, who are both brought into these states, but none more so prominent in that group than Gideon himself. When he starts off in his hero's journey, he is meeting his mentor, if you will, in his ordinary circumstance in Israel as a coward who's hiding from Midianite raiders in order to basically thresh wheat in a way that would be futile. He was mm -hmm. hiding under a wine press rather than bringing it to the top of the hill, because if someone found out that you had food at this time in Jewish history, they'd just take it from you and mm. probably kill you. So he's in a state of cowardice, and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, um, behold, mighty man of valor, uh, go and gather Israel to redeem them, basically, from the Midianites' oppression. And he's like, I'm the least of my household. I'm not a hero. What are you talking about? He refuses that first call. Then in overcoming that, in his meeting of the mentor, he's not only subjected to, but subjects the Lord to a series of trials where he needs to know, is this in fact what you have called me to, or was I uh, just out in the sun too long? A series of miracles verifies this, and then as we read in the book of Judges, he is also given the opportunity to uh, combat idolatry in his culture, where his life is threatened, and his family comes to his defense, all mind you, but when he finally gathers the armies of Israel, numbering in the tens of thousands, the Lord comes to him with another trial and says, there's too much. You guys have an ego problem, and if you were to go as you are, that would mean that you would think that you got credit for this. So I want you to obey my law, go back to Deuteronomy, and ask people, you know, if you have a house, if you have a family, if you guys don't want to be here, go home. And the good, a good number rather, of them all leave. Then God gives them another trial where their numbers are dwindled even more, where he says, tell them to go down to the brook, and if they drink the water out of the stream, 
uh, by dunking their heads in the water with no mind for their personal safety. Tell them to go home, but the people you know, just scoop it out with their hand, that's a sign that I've called them, not just in physical stature, but mental as well. And this is an inference on my part, but you get the point. Then Gideon's left with 300. And by the way, uh, the time of the judges, that would put this around 1200 BC. So this would be about 500 years before Leonidas and the brave 300 at Thermopylae. The Jews (laughs) founded that idea. But these 300 men, go and basically are told by God to do a psychological campaign against the Midianites, their camp and military renown and so forth, also is full of pagans, and God was planting in them dreams of this army coming to basically overcome them in the night, illustrated through a bundle of fire, uh, basically just toppling over all of their tents. They wake up and they're told, cover your torches, with pots and then smash them so that they just suddenly appear in the middle of the night. And normally you didn't give every soldier a torch. It was maybe like one per squad, if you want to use the modern term. And just to see 300 torches, they'd assume there'd be like 10 times that number of soldiers out there. We can't see anyone or anything. We don't know if that's people out there or in there. I don't know if the guy next to me is a Jewish soldier or my soldier. And they all just brutalize each other in the panic. God gets the victory. So you see this, again, third stage, this overcoming of their own pride as well as their own, I guess, uh, trepidation in doing what they should have been doing with God from the beginning, and that was just obeying his commands. But as they're given that opportunity to not only overcome their enemies and also liberate themselves from the oppression they'd have been experiencing for several decades at this point, God is, of course, the one who brings Gideon through his hero's journey, that Gideon is then given this new name and uh, unfortunately has uh, another story arc, which is called Humanity. He falls back into idolatry. He marries a lot of different women. And as a very poor father, which polygamy tends to create of you, um, his successor and son, Abimelech, I think his name was, uh, ended up being a very, very poor specimen. He undid basically every good in Israel that Gideon did. But note, that was a hero's journey for Gideon. When we're talking about honest history, however, doesn't mean that you get it right the whole time. You could say he had a last Jedi moment, if you will, after the story was done. But if you want to read through the book of Judges, Gideon would be a perfect example of that. Um, I won't uh, put you on the spot, Adrian, but if you can think of any others in Scripture for the hero's journey, obviously from the New Testament we look at Jesus of Nazareth, but more personally and relatedly we look at the Apostle Peter. Mm -hmm. He was given that call as an apostle, and of course, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Uh, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And uh, the Lord, of course, gives Peter his new name, that call, his denial of the Lord, his trials, him meeting Jesus after his resurrection, that uh, overcoming of his trial, and then finally Mm -hmm. his uh, call in the book of Acts, where he gladly suffers martyrdom for someone he denied ever knowing when a little girl challenged him about it. Mm -hmm. You can see this theme as well. But uh, what's interesting about this as well, Allie, and you can look up specific names, but a screenwriter, not a Christian, but a screenwriter for Sony Entertainment was doing a seminar about writing. And what was very interesting was when he said, 
you're going to find that every single worthwhile story, and this is, again, not speaking as a Christian, as a screenwriter, is going to follow this structure. As far as something being meaningful to the human heart, it's always going to follow this pattern that Jesus of Nazareth demonstrated in Jewish history, that the conquering king humbles himself, experiences a death of sorts for the ones that he loves, and then overcomes what once overcame him in order to establish a reign of peace. So when we look at our Lord, obviously every human heart is longing for, and we see in Romans chapter 8, all of creation is longing for the redemption Mm -hmm. that our Lord will ultimately accomplish in us. And storytelling can be a way of communicating that, whether it's through history, whether it's through art and poetry. Keep an eye out for those sort of things and ask yourself in this story structure, obviously there's going to be bits and pieces you'll have to throw aside in favor of the others, but that's the case in anything. What reminds me of Jesus in this? And we can look in Scripture when it comes to as far as inspiration for modern stories. It's going to be something that resonates with the heart. And our Lord was smart in picking people who are just as human as we were, but were able to overcome insurmountable odds because of this very work. The Mm -hmm. fact not that we're so great, but that God, in fact, through us can do great things. And that's the truth of all these heroes' journeys that we see in Scripture, like Moses and you know even King David, who almost seems to start off as a hero and then goes through tremendous failure. And then there is a repentance where I love that psalm. Was it Psalm 52, where he talks about how 51, he's, I think. Psalm 51, uh, where he describes his failure and how he will use his negative experience as a, as a way to call other sinners to repent, to lead people to truth and his remorse. And, and then of course, Moses, a uh, perfect example of being given all the tools, being raised as a, as a son of Egypt, a son of Pharaoh, even though he's not biologically. And then as he discovers this reality, or as this reality is, you know, as he matures, he flees, he commits murder, uh, kind of kind of rightfully so, but still it was murder, and he flees, he runs from his calling until God calls him back. And even then, he's, he's you know, pushing back against God, saying, gosh, I'm not a really good speaker. God has to remind him that God invented mouths, and he can help people talk, and he ends up using Aaron as his mouthpiece, and so on. And you see this great story unravel, uh, and historically, and how that has really become a model for so many storytellers to use and describe the hero's journey. So it's a, it's a great point and a great uh, question to say, gosh, how, how have these stories and how have these individuals throughout history, throughout biblical history, been used by God through, uh, through the human condition, through a sinful heart and a sinful mind, and how God can still use even... Uh, you know, <laughs> I think of Jonah, you know, thinking, nope, nope, they're, they're not going to listen to me. He runs and runs from his calling, and then, you know, God still uses him even after all that. So really, it's the hero's journey is about uh, God's grace and God's um, helping broken humans, sinful humans grow in the sin nature and yet have a, all through having a relationship with him and actually obeying him when he calls us. <laughs> All right, so let us know if that helps you out, Allie. Uh, Going out to our questions, we have a question from Essay, who wants to know, in light of the, I won't mention the name, but you're probably all familiar with uh, 
pastor situation uh, took place in Texas. Should men and women avoid close friendships? Obviously, this is a situation where the internet is shown to be a double-edged sword, because while the easy access of information like what we're sharing here can be used for good, it also gives that same ability to people who are sharing false information and also coming to very uninformed conclusions. When it comes to the full extent of the situation, obviously, we don't know everything, and we should keep it that way because it is none of our business as far as an individual having an extended conversation with someone of the opposite sex. That's literally the full extent of this. However, Adrian, you and I were talking about this, not just in how the situation depresses me, but also the impression that was suggested for both of us. This wasn't a moral failure on the pastor's part, as much as it was a wise moment for the elders that he is under the leadership of. And when it comes to issues, and we have other questions on this as well in a moment, but issues of church discipline, when people in church leadership choose to, and in this case, just ask a pastor to step down for a time, focus on his relationship with God, and then see that restoration happen, hopefully, 1 Corinthians 3 style, the point of emphasis is this. When it comes to a scandal, when it comes to a situation with someone that either A, we don't know, or B, something we don't know enough about, what's important to pay attention to is A, what's actually said, and B, what was actually done about it. If the individuals who were in leadership over him were representing God's heart, then they were taking two things into consideration. First, the impact this had on his relationship with his wife and the relationship that this has with his Lord. And you can note as a uh, close third the example that he was setting as someone to the flock. Because when we read the pastoral epistles, an essay, you can look these up on your own time, in First and Second Timothy, as well as Titus, there's this consistent theme of someone who is in church leadership to be above reproach. Now, Adrian, I can fully admit to you and everyone else here, and I do so on regular occasions, that if above reproach is intended to mean that they have no sin in their life whatsoever, then I'm out. And Paul was out and Titus was out, and Timothy was out, and literally everyone apart from Jesus would be out. So if our interpretation is absurd, we need to find a new interpretation. What does it mean that it, you are above reproach? Well, that's what the elders were trying to preserve, that in his transparency and accountability, mm -hmm. even in the most superficial of things, that he sought to set an example to his flock mm -hmm. and saying, in the small things or the big things, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 3, he wasn't sleeping with his own mom. The Bible yeah. addresses that as a situation <laughs> right, yeah. where church discipline would have him leave the church, mm. but also capable of being restored. In this situation, the incident was, as far as we know, literally an extended conversation with someone of the opposite sex, which leads us to Essay's question. Digitally, by the way, not in person. Yeah, so should... Uh, like Christian. having a Facebook chat with a high school, someone you went to high school with, and it was a continual conversation. I'm not saying that's what happened, but it would be something like that. Like, oh, wow, how have you been? And la da 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 And it, you carry it on, and you realize you're connecting, and that that gave the appearance of evil, uh, that the elders thought, at least in this situation, that he ought to back away from leadership for a time, and, and there's no scandal. There's no sense that he's done as a pastor. They just said, hey, maybe you should take a break and reevaluate. Uh, 
you're a lead pastor of a very, very large church, and you know better. And so to, to get back to the, to the original question, I have never seen married individuals have close relationships that didn't end up being bad. <laughs> and this is the and, point. And Again, bad, Adrian, meaning, if you show us your left hand here, you've got a shard, or I guess a, a shard of metal that uh, oh, is attributing yeah, to typically that. Typically, well, it's still melted and waiting to be crafted. <laughs> he, is, he's uh, very symbolic about these things. But yeah. you are a married man. I am a single man. So this, I think, is an appropriate way of analyzing this. The question is, is it sinful to have a relationship with someone, a close relationship from the opposite sex? Well, it wouldn't and be the, sinful per se. I mean, ultimately, it depends on your intent. And in in the context of this situation, intent doesn't matter. And is that's it, the point, is perception of others yeah. and that being different by mm-hmm. person to person. But so, let's say you take intent out of the equation and just say, is it healthy or safe to avoid, as the questioner asks, should we avoid close friendships? And it depends on what you mean by a close friendship, and it also depends on how that friendship is carried on. Is it in a group environment? I would say that uh, the eldress, Pam Richards, is is my friend because I've known their family for years, even before I became a member of the church. I would go over to their house for dinner. They would invite us out. We got to know each other over many years. And so I could say, yes, I have uh, a friendship with Pam Richards, but I would not say that we're like close friends and we're always chatting. Hey, did you see the news? I mean, that would be inappropriate. And it just doesn't even make sense to do that. That's something that guys do. That's something that with each other. And that's something that uh, women do when, when with each other. And it's as soon as a man and a woman start engaging in that way, I'm with them when Harry met Sally crowd. You know, men and women can't be friends, <laughs> not unless there's uh, a relational intent, meaning that you're, you have intentions because you're a single individual and you think, wow, I, I would love to get to know you better. And now that's kind of like a preliminary dating scenario. And anytime two married individuals engage in a friendship in that way, you're just really asking for for trouble, and I and I've been on both ends of that failure, both on the receiving, being the victim, and also being the perpetrator. So I'm I'm guilty across the board, and I I've just never seen it work, and I I just would avoid it. Personally, I'm not saying this is a biblical mandate, but <clears throat> yeah, we'll get into that in a second. If even if not in ministry, I would it wouldn't matter if I were in ministry or not. I would just in, avoid. Uh, Close. When I mean close, I mean very personal, intimate relationships uh, with people of the opposite sex. Now, does it mean that you don't have uh, like a group environment where, um, you know, like I said, uh, the two of us are friends with the two of them as two married couples and, and we all know each other well? But as soon as you take that, just like in this situation with this pastor, he took that out of that context and started developing a one-on-one. Now, sure, they hadn't committed any adultery. They hadn't. There was nothing sexual about it. There was nothing. But they just realized we're connecting. We're two married people connecting, and this is just stupid. And he, as a lead pastor, should know that even that is unwise, and therefore they concluded that he ought to take a step back because that's just the first step in a whole long list of steps that could lead to scandal, could lead to immorality, and it's better to just... You know, like Jesus said, if your right hand's going to cause you to sin, just cut it off. Uh, Oswald Chambers says, when in doubt, stop. (laughs) 
<laughs> and this is the whole point. If you were to listen to, for those of you who know the situation, his own confession and acknowledgement, I'm going to be stepping down for a time, his one commendation, and this is the whole point of the situation so that the answer is understood in full context, the whole point of emphasis was the elders cared enough about me to deal with this issue before it was really even an issue. And this is the well, point. Well, and he was wise enough to take it to them. Yeah, and this is the point. You as a married man, you've owed yourself to a woman as an example of Jesus Christ to her exclusively, and with that comes an expectation not just of your accountability to her, but also your accountability to others. The appearance of evil would mm-hmm. be a deviation of that oath. If I, as a single man, were to engage with, and like you made the illustration with my mom, your wife, you know me, you know her, you know that we can engage on those common grounds, but I would consider it, and this was your word, unwise, not immoral, but unwise, because of how it would either A, affect other people, B, impact you emotionally if it was just in an Mm -hmm. awkward situation and we couldn't explain 50 details before your emotions had already painted a picture, or I as a pastor also not taking into consideration all the eyes that are on me, seeking to be a spiritual example. Wisdom is -hmm. the issue, not sin. So when we're talking about this issue of should men and women avoid close friendships, that's a question of the mind. Think through how not only this is perceived by others, but carefully consider how this can and will continue to be perceived Mm -hmm. by you. Because I can honestly say in my life there have been and continue to be completely single man, platonic relationships, completely and fully and frankly explained to them as saying this isn't because of a date, this isn't because of anything. We like watching anime, but I always make sure it's in a group setting. Mm -hmm. Also note, if they were to seek me out individually, I would be not sinful or righteous. I would be wise in saying, hey, can I talk to you privately and stuff? Mm. Well, why don't you instead, let's meet during anime day, we can maybe go off to the side, but make sure it's in a public space. Not because I have intents, not because necessarily they have intentions, but because it's wise to avoid the appearance of evil. And this is where the biblical mandate comes in. The context of 1 Thessalonians 5, this conversation is referring to prophecy, but this is also in application to anything that we receive or share from God. This is in verse uh, 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, mm-hmm. hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Some translations would even uh, put it as the appearance of evil, avoid the appearance of it. And this is the point. If you're put in a situation where it's not sinful, but it's probably foolish, it's unwise, that's giving us the opportunity to grow as people and say, maybe go about that a different way, because Mm -hmm. I either, A, don't underestimate my ability down the road to be fallen and sinful, or in the immediate, other people who may struggle in this area to be stumbled by that behavior, Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't actually the case. Shorter conversations are always best, and if the way we're Mm -hmm. living our lives allows people to have as short a conversation about what we were doing and why as possible, great, because as we've seen on the internet, and again, this is why it depresses Mm -hmm. me, we see people 
the two people are having a conversation and then suddenly it descends into the equivalent of an ethnic Tumblr blog. Yeah. Well, so. and, and think about how <clears throat> the media have, uh, have reacted to this versus when Mike Pence, as a born-again Christian, said that he would never sit in a room alone or have a meeting alone or have a meal alone with another woman without his wife present. That's the same exact kind of wisdom that we're dealing with, the exact same wisdom. Uh, but one is being treated as, oh, well, he's a pastor. And I mean, they mocked, mocked the vice president for uh, disclosing that that was his practice. And he was mocked for it. And here's a pastor just simply living by the same standard saying, gosh, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have allowed a conversation that would be the equivalent of having a coffee with a friend. Uh, that was probably not wise. And I need to take a step back as a senior pastor and, and kind of... Um, take a, a little self-assessment test for us for a season and they're going to treat it as some scandal <laughs> it's just bizarre to me how the world looks but the important thing is is that we as believers um will will fail and do fail and that we as the body have to be there for one another and that's why we share these things so that those of us like myself who have uh, held to a very high standard. You can ask my my wife. Uh, we dated for well, officially and unofficially for about five years, and I had very very strict rules to the point where I even at times, <clears throat> in a very nice tone, <laughs> threatened our relationship, saying that if you ever break or violate these principles, I will end the relationship immediately. And that was things like never meeting alone, always being in the context of groups or in public or in settings where uh, temptation were, for the most part, impossible. And fortunately, and praise God, we, we had tremendous success by living by those principles. But I've also experienced failure. Whenever I let my guard down, I've experienced tremendous failure. So hopefully you'll take the wisdom of those who of us who have gone through the downs, the, the Death Valley days of, of stupidity, and not, and then when you're in a position like Sean, where you haven't uh, had an, enough experience to have made many of those failures, that you'll take heed and and just listen to us and <laughs> do the wise thing. That's the point. So again, I say it's not an issue of sin; it's an issue of wisdom. And of course, we should keep in mind not only how it's perceived, but also to take into account we are fallen, sinful people, and to live in anticipation of that. Let us know if that helps you out. Uh, but I guess as a yes or no <laughs> question. The answer is yes, you can have close relationships with women, but you also have to ask more than that. Are you married? Are you single? Has the relationship been clarified and understood? It's not a black and white issue. It's a thinking issue, which isn't mm -hmm. more than, which yeah. always not more than one step. But thanks for the question. Um, here's a question we received off air from the elder who wants to know, and you all probably know how I feel about this, but I'll make sure it's answered in truth as well as passion. Is denying the Trinity a cause for church discipline? Well, I would say yes outright with two passages in mind. Both are in the book of Titus, but let me also take a step and clarify. We try to make our list of non-negotiables as narrow as possible as far as what makes you a Christian and <clears throat> what doesn't. If you affirm the deity of Christ, the nature of salvation, the authority, preservation, inspiration, and ultimate uh, infallibility of Scripture, and the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of God through which mm -hmm. we are saved and by which we identify Jesus as the second member of. Take your time with that if you need to listen to this broadcast again, go ahead or ask a follow-up question. I'll present it more slowly. 
I consider you a brother. I consider you a part of the church. Church discipline isn't applied to a non-believer, and right. that would be my first clarification. Yeah, that's if, a good point. Yeah, so if, on the other hand, someone claims to be a Christian and would deny the fundamentals of the gospel, I wouldn't be dealing with them in church discipline, because church discipline's applied to fellow believers. Right, yeah. But if, on the other hand, someone in church is being disruptive and divisive and teaching false doctrine and heresy, two passages that I'd keep in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is in Titus chapter 1. Let me read the whole thing in context, but I have verse 9 in mind. For a bishop, this is verse 7, must be blameless, we were mentioning that earlier, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent or greedy or, or for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, and this, this is the key, holding fast the faithful word which he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine... Doctrine is referring to what we believe as Christians, so sound, stable doctrine, both to exhort, to build up, and to convict those who contradict. So one of the qualifications of a bishop or an overseer, we can use pastor interchangeably, but those in church leadership are required, not just in the context of church discipline, but in church activities in general, to combat and confront those who would not only... Um, exhort those who believe it, but contradict sound doctrine. That would be an example of the Trinity. And in church discipline, the question is, is that being exercised towards non-believers or fellow believers? I preface that with my point. The second passage is in Titus chapter 3 and verses 9 through 11. Uh, Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, secondary issues, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Both of these situations are addressing someone who can be held to the standard that they're being divisive about. When Jesus went on in the Gospel accounts to emphasize, if your brother sins against you, first meet him personally— close relationship. Mm -hmm. No, uh, meet him one-on-one, -on -one, bring a witness if they still won't hear you, and bring it before the church, the assembly, and if they still won't hear you, let them be as a non-believer, essentially, a thief and a tax collector. So note this process of restoration, but also of the audience. When we're talking about church discipline, the goal is always restoration, but to what? Mm -hmm. Their sound doctrine, their understanding and status as a fellow believer who isn't being contentious, isn't being divisive, mm -hmm. isn't contradicting sound doctrine. And that would be, again, a, a behavioral issue. Now you have really a wolf in sheep's clothing, a non-believer trying to uh, disrupt the faith of others. So they're, they're actually someone that—I wouldn't call it church discipline. I would say you're expelling— uh, other, I, I don't even know what the... An enemy of the gospel. <laughs> yeah, an enemy of the faith. You're, you're expelling them. Church discipline, as Sean mentioned, is uh, really for believers, a, a system in place, because, because the tight-knitness of the Christian community, the idea that we're a family of God, we're in a body of believers, and we're in the world but separate from it, and, and usually enemies of it. And yeah. truth matters to us. Yeah, and truth matters, and uh, bearing one another's burdens and being empathetic towards the needs of our, our fellow believers. Uh, with that in mind, 
church discipline is really a way for us to hold each other accountable. And only at the very, very, very end of that process is someone expelled from the community. But the whole idea is to encourage and foster Christ-like behavior in the life of believers, not necessarily there or designed to modify our doctrine. When it comes to the fundamentals, as Sean said, I think there's probably a lot of people that set foot in our church that do not believe in the fundamentals. People who don't know anything about um, the Calvary Chapel movement or have a very strong background in Christian belief. They just they maybe heard something as a kid and thought, I would like to start going to church, and so they pop in and they start learning, and they're, they're thinking, wow, I, I didn't know that, and I, I don't believe it. They kind of always assumed that the Trinity was nonsense or something like that, and so there would be correction for sure. There would be an exhortation from other believers saying, no, this is, this is important. You cannot—this isn't something we can agree to disagree on. This isn't something we can divide. The goal and, of the correction <laughs> wouldn't be to restore them to a status they never had. Exactly. Our goal should be yeah. the gospel. Now we're hoping to help them get saved <laughs> and become would, a believer. <laughs> yeah, but church discipline would not apply yeah. to those who aren't believers. And if you deny, not if you aren't aware of, or if you're still hammering out in your mind, if you deny the Trinity, you're by mm-hmm. definition not a Christian. That yeah. would be my answer. And if you're being disruptive by going around and going, you guys, now there's an issue where you, I think, a form of ex- expulsion would be... Uh, appropriate. Yeah, and so again, the uh, elder will be joining us tomorrow, hopefully, uh, if I answered this incorrectly or if he would have anything to clarify. Um, feel free. I'm game. But if this is like a test of something, if I, I'm going to be called to church discipline here soon and they have something in mind, uh, let me know if that's clear, but um, that would be how I deal with it. I'd say categorically, if someone denies the Trinity, they're not a Christian. Church discipline applies to fellow Christians mm-hmm. with the goal of restoration. Yeah. And as I said, you can't restore someone to a position they never had. Now, I've had pastors that I've known use what Sean just said to apply to everybody so that they don't have to confront someone and kick them out of church. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you wonder, how is that per I, I remember sitting, it was a small church, and this person had, uh, had a, left their spouse. They hadn't, gotten, they hadn't finalized a divorce or anything. There was no grounds for a biblical divorce. And they show up at church with a girlfriend. And I'm thinking, what is this person thinking? <laughs> First of all, That's we're such a tight-knit nice. group. And I remember just asking... The pastor, I thought, well, gosh, you know, we need to go through the steps of church discipline. And his response was, well, you know, he's, we already talked to him, and he understands that he's in the wrong, but he, he's kind of in a stuck situation. And, you know, sometimes we got to just treat people like unbelievers, and that's all we're going to do. We're going to just treat them like an unbeliever. And I thought, wait a minute, someone's living in a, in a permanent public lifestyle that is contrary to Christ-like living— and we're going to just write it off as a, oh, they're an unbeliever because they're living in sin. No, they're a believer. You know, 1 Corinthians 5 makes it very clear. Any so-called brother, even if they're a so-called brother, uh, is now under that type of church discipline. So They're calling themselves a believer, so they would be held to it. But if in doctrine, as opposed right, to behavior... Yeah. That's yeah. different. Yeah, it is different. <laughs> Their behavior can be addressed with the goal of restoration. And as we saw yeah. in 1 Corinthians 3 and... Second Corinthians mm-hmm. chapter 5, I believe it was, 
not always an immediate process yeah. and not always a clean one either. We're involved. But the point being made is just that uh, issues of doctrine are different mm-hmm. from issues of behavior. One uh, affects your sanctification and standing with the body of Christ. The other affects your standing with Christ mm. himself. Yeah. So <laughs> here's, a, here's a real quick, I, I caught this and I thought it'd be really interesting, probably a quick answer. Is, is it true God is outside of time and is heaven also outside of time? When we're told about the transition from the old creation to the new, obviously our dwelling place won't just be outside of this creation. We'll be introduced to a new creation that will have the passage of time, but not measured by decay. It'll be actually measured by life. If you read Revelation 22, it notes the tree of life Mm -hmm. will produce a new fruit every month. And this ties into another question we received from Isaiah, who wants to know, uh, clarifying Revelation 14, where it notes in hell, will time pass, because it says they'll be tormented with fire and brimstone day and night, and they have no rest. So when it comes to the passage of time in the afterlife, the next life, we need to first clarify a few things. Uh, When we're talking about the nature of eternity, we're not talking about the nature of an ongoing present any more than we do now. Time as a concept, yes, was introduced by God. He is timeless. He introduced this concept of a start to finish. doesn't mean that he can't choose to step in and experience time as Jesus did in the Incarnation, but in his essence, he exists outside of time. He's not limited by it. He made it. It, it, Time did not exist prior to the creation of the universe, as we understand time within the framework of the universe today. Yeah, he's not made of the things he invented. He has a, a very distinct exception to that. But we, however, were and will continue to be created for the purpose of experiencing events one after another and ultimately leading to an eternal existence. We are made in the image of God in that regard. Not that we always have existed, only God can say that. But when we begin to exist because we bear that image, we will forever continue to exist. The question is, where will we spend it? And in the presence of God, note, that's what makes heaven heaven. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, what does it say? God himself will be with them. Mm -hmm. That's what will make it paradise, that the Lamb and the Lord will be its light. There will be no need for the sun or the moon of the stars to shine because he is there. No temple, he is there. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. He'll dwell among his people in this kind of reiteration of the Exodus in its prime. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. Now, if we flip that and say, okay, living forever with God is paradise, well, what is, and here's the presumption that you're asking, Isaiah, what is the living forever apart from Christ? That's hell. Notice, we exist because we bear the image of God, but deprived for the thing by which we were meant to be, and that we do exist, that will, of course, be a state of torment, not Mm -hmm. torture, torment, an internal state of anguish. Um, When you use terms like times and seasons, I'll clarify that. It's not like there'll be a a summer in hell, and then things will kind of ease off over a span of a few months, or like, um, I don't know if those of you listening internationally, we have a local restaurant chain called EG's, and the big appeal for us is the flavors of the month, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good. You usually go based on those things. It's not like, oh, there'll be, you know, less fun times in heaven because, oh, I don't like the fruit of the month that uh, is coming from the tree of life or anything like that. We're talking about what makes heaven heaven and what makes hell hell. It's not the question, and this is the point that's answering both of Yari and Isaiah's questions, 
the passage of time, that's a given because of what kind of beings we mm-hmm. are. But where we are in proximity to God and his blessings is what makes it paradise or torment. Mm-hmm. And, and I like the, the way pa- Pastor Scott worded it is that how we experience time in the now is really a measurement of decay. Time in heaven will not be like that, but it doesn't mean that we won't experience a series of events, moments. So there will be moments, events, as you as you can, I don't know how you'd philosophically define time as a series of events, but I, I like the way that he uh, pointed that out, is that time today really is kind of a way of measuring decay, and that will be put, it, put to an end. But notice we are the reference here as creatures that experience time. God can condescend to us within time, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that he's now subjected to right. it. He's not getting older. Right, yeah, he's not bound by it. A challenge to you, though, it just popped into my head. I, I don't hold to the... Um, those who go to head, uh, hell will be ended. They will cease to exist, or something like that. But what it occurred to yeah, what it occurred to me, the, a pushback someone could bring up is that you have the resurrection, and you have the, and then there's a second death. Mm-hmm. So the second death is those who are raised and judged by the great white throne judgment, and then of course Christians will be judged by the judgment seat of Christ, right. where our uh, good works and not good works are put through the fire, and the reward is either non-existent or given. <laughs> He's uh, referencing, for those of you taking notes at home, Second Corinthians 5, in regard to the judgment seat of Christ, believers being rewarded or ultimately dealt with as far as what they've done in this life or not. doesn't mean that we're denied access to heaven, but the things we can enjoy in heaven will be limited by that. Mm-hmm. And he also made the point in First Corinthians 3, but continue. So if everyone gets raised from the... No, I'm, Making this up as I go, I haven't thought it, but it just popped in my head. So I thought I'll this let you would know be great. if you say something weird. <laughs> so if 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 eternal life means I've been raised to life bodily, and now I'm going to exist in physical form with God in heaven for eternity, and that's what it means to have eternity. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. But eternal death would be to not know that. Okay, well, that would be the reply, but the, my point was going to be, if they are resurrected and put in hell, that could make sense, but if they're resurrected and then put back to death, because it's a second death, how can we, how do we look at that part of Revelation about it being a second death and yet still being alive in torment and conscious when typically, at least I thought that in the thinking of the ancients was that when you died, you were no longer conscious, and you were now being resurrected to be judged consciously, and now you're going to be put back in unconscious death and torment. Well, I guess you'd have to find an example of the ancients thinking that way within Scripture, because while I have full respect for old people, they can make mistakes too. And again, the point being made is just that. If the Scripture puts together this narrative for us, then I follow that to its end. But if people set up a narrative and I impose that on Scripture, that would be faulty. Uh, when it comes to what we're and told about... And I'm not about, even sure if annihilationists use oh, no, no. second death as an argument. It just, I, I thought, I wonder if, that, if they could. <laughs> if they no, it, uh, the, and again, do my limited interactions with annihilationists, the two ways that they argue is either with an emphasis on God's character and imposing cruelty for per, uh, sustaining someone's existence, despite them being separated from him, uh, and they have to do so, this is my response, in the face of passages like 1 Corinthians 14, where it notes this ongoing from the ages to the ages, the state of their torment, uh, and in the presence of the holy angels and the 
the lamb. Uh, the second argument that annihilationist usually would emphasize, again, not in Scripture, but imposed in Scripture, is not just the nature of God, but the nature of hell itself, mm-hmm. and saying that, well, death, doesn't that mean that you are separate from all of God's perfect gifts, including existence? And that's, again, an mm-hmm. inference, not a conclusion. When we're talking about the state of the afterlife, and I'm trying to phrase this in such a way where everyone, including myself, can understand, we're talking about something that is basically giving us something to do with what we already have, if that makes sense. When we're talking about the death state, nowhere, at least that I can think of off the bat in Scripture, defines it as a Mm -hmm. secession of existence any more than when Jesus Mm -hmm. was experiencing the wrath of God in John 19, he ceased to exist for three hours. And if that second death implies a physical destruction, being tossed in the lake of fire sort of thing, that goes on to show that existence doesn't necessarily mean bodily it could be a hell could be a a real uh, experience but it could be spiritual in nature meaning that there's no like there's not like an actual physical place like earth like upside down earth <laughs> yeah like the, the silent down. hill vibes and stuff <laughs> no and that's the tricky thing is do we have glorified bodies in hell which means that i'm preserved forever i'm capable of living forever but in mm-hmm. that body i'm separate from god and thus the torment we don't know that uh, as far as the nature of those who have physically died. Mm-hmm. Do they keep a resurrection state, or are they in a like soulish state but cut off from all of God's perfect gifts? That's the point, is we don't know. If, on the other hand, I go off of what I do know, let me just read the passage. I think this is as explicit as it gets. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, let me start in verse 9. This is in full context. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, state of hell, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And notice, they have no rest, day or night, who worship the image of the beast and whoever receives the mark of his name. So they are still qualified as a conscious and a living Mm -hmm. entity, despite the fact that their tormented state is an ongoing one. In the same inverse, I would also say that's the same reason why I believe heaven will be a conscious experience, Mm -hmm. because my bliss will be based on my proximity to Jesus. That's the whole point, is my relationship with him. Good job. Thanks, John. Well, uh, Dwayne, clear. <laughs> Dwayne wants to know, is it mandatory for people who believe in God to keep nature protected? Should we be, uh, should we be concerned about conserving nature, protecting nature, taking good care of the world, and caring about pollution and uh, things that... I mean, I know it bothers me every time I see a plastic container just because I've, I've been all over the world and I've seen what it's like to live in tra- with trash everywhere. And it's just, it's depressing that that, that it happens. And so, it, you know, just on a personal level, I typically feel like we do have a responsibility because Adam and Eve were given charge to take, you know, to subdue the earth and to take charge over it. So I would imagine on at least a Genesis <laughs> Genesis level, there it, there was given to humanity the responsibility to... Uh, take care of and, and t- 
till the earth and, and be lords of the earth in a sense. Yeah, um, this answer actually got me kicked out of college. Um, when we're talking about the nature of, I guess, being stewards of creation in Genesis chapter 2, to not just subdue the earth, but to steward it, that implies with it a responsibility. And notice it is an inference, but it does reflect the idea. And I justify that because in again, the book of Revelation, there's an interesting observation made about those who are due the wrath of God. Uh, in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18, we read, the nations were angry, Psalm 2 reference, and your wrath has come. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged, Daniel 12, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. Now notice by contrast, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Hmm. When I make something, and again, I've been insulted more personally, but if I make something for someone and have an intent for it to be an enjoyed and they destroy it, I kind of take that personally because it shows not just a lack of respect for the creation, but also of the creator. I would take that and, say, and run with it to say that would also be something as an object of the wrath of God spelled out in Scripture, why we as righteous people as Christians should want to steward the earth, or at least not to destroy it. And the heartbreak that, again, you experience and that I see, uh, we can be proactive about this and not being a part of the problem, mm -hmm. and maybe take some time to be a part of the solution. But when we make the point of emphasis in saying, oh, so Christians should always vote for, like, you know, green technology and stuff, not at the compromise of wisdom, because what's actually happening isn't the preservation of the environment. Mm -hmm. If you uh, look at some of the uh, rare earth minerals that they have to do to support the technology that's mm -hmm. being made uh, to support their electric cars and so forth, it actually does more damage than five Chernobyls combined. Yeah, the, drawing that realization from Scripture and then looking at the current state of what people say they are as conservationists and so on may not be the same thing. They A lot of times that's politicized, so you have to be careful not to just buy everything you hear when it comes to environmental protection as just that. It's not always. A lot of times there's a, a politicized agenda, and so we just have to be wise as believers on how we uh, engage in that. But the point being made, and again, the point that got my transcripts removed was this. I have a love for creation. True story, I'll tell you sometime. Uh, I have a regard for the creation because of my respect for the Creator. I, as a Christian, would want to reflect his nature, and since God doesn't abuse and neglect the earth, we shouldn't either mm -hmm. as his representatives. Um, does that help you out, Dwayne? Let us know. Yeah, um, question from no name, comma, please. Uh, if we are redeemed by grace through faith in Christ our Lord's atonement and resurrection, good doctrine, uh, we will be robed in Christ's righteousness, that's uh, correct. Why would we be put to judgment at death? And if heaven is be living in God's presence, why would we be given reward or not based on works? What then possibly could a reward beyond being with God? Uh, if no sin is greater than another, why would any works be greater than others, leading to greater or lesser rewards? I guess greater, this may be the confusion, no name please, is greater or lesser rewards in substance as opposed to quantity, because the things we do in this life matter. Um, I think the best way to approach this is, again, we are limited for time, but by contrast, when I tell people that uh, sins have greater consequences, it doesn't mean that you go to super hell if you commit certain <laughs> sins over others. Super hell. But if I'm, it's it made sense at the junior high. But when MAGA we're, hell. 
<laughs> yeah, when we're talking about this, make the point of emphasis, there is a way in which we have immediate consequences for the things that we do in this life. If I commit adultery, that's going to have a lot bigger consequences than if I look at pornography. But both are lust of the eyes, both are a deviation from God's character, both are examples and demonstrations of me falling short of the glory of God. The adulterer and the pornographer both stand before God, guilty and worthy of judgment, and thus get the same reward, and that mm -hmm. is death. If on the other hand, I inverse that, and again, for the sake of time, say, so the immediate consequences, if I'm a philanthropist and I focus on, you know, giving all my deeds to feed the poor and so forth, and do it properly in the name of Jesus, that's going to be something I'll be accountable for before God and a reflection of his nature that will give all the more weight to the eternal reward, which is well done, good and faithful servant. And this is the point. When we're talking about fellowship with Jesus, we're not just talking about that one moment and then he just kind of lets us go off to wander in the woods somewhere and just make sure that no wild animals tear us apart. No, it will be an ongoing relationship with Jesus, and the things that we've done in this life will be brought with us, just mm -hmm. like the things that we'd rather leave behind in this life have been removed. The judgment seat of Christ is making that point of noting, I would rather have more quantity, not quality, rewards with Jesus than less, and the things that I would consider rewards are the things I have in common with him, and that's what we mean by good, reflecting his nature, getting to know him and express him more firsthand as his spirit works through us. If we're going to infer upon that, oh, well, uh, he's got the super righteous crown, but you got like the inferior righteous crown. You got martyred because you got your head cut off, but Peter, he got crucified. He got the super martyr's crown. That's inaccurate. If on the other hand, I'd say, you know, oh, you committed worse sins than others. In an eternal sense, it's the same reward, but the depth of that consequence will also, I believe, also be inversed in heaven, the depth of the reward of the enjoying Jesus forever. Let me know if that helps you out. No name, please. Uh, if we didn't get to your questions, please email them to us. We will get to them tomorrow. Thank you, Adrian, for joining us. Thank you all as well for listening. God bless you, and we'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.